Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. If uh, this is your first time with us and I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here and, and glad that you are with us. I'm just going to kind of keep rearranging the furniture here for a little bit and, uh, and, and then we'll move on. But I do want to say something about VBS. Um, I, I had the least challenging job responsibility of anyone. I just met people out in the parking lot. Um, but let me tell you, we, we, got to see, we got to see the Lord do some incredible things. And from my perspective, out in the parking lot, this is what I got to see Jesus do. It would rain in the morning. It would stop long enough for people to come into the building. It would rain while we were in the building. It would stop as we exited the building. And then it would rain again later that afternoon. And yeah, praise God. Being the person out there, you know, with the umbrellas to give out if I need it. Now, it did happen Friday morning. It, it did mist a little bit during that transition time. But other than that, it was, it was beautiful. It was great fun. I love getting to be in the parking lot and, and greeting people. That is such a joy to me. We are starting a new series this week. This is kind of our summer series. And uh, Pastor Dean and I are going to be leading in this. And we're calling it Pastor's Picks. And so what that means is there's not going to be like a linear straight line where we're going through, you know, a book of the Bible or uh, anything like that. There's not going to be one huge topic. We're just going to kind of walk through some of our favorites, if you would, um, some of our favorite stories or events or encounters or maybe just a passage of Scripture that, um, that we, we're picking. And um, so you're saying, well, how am I going to find continuity? I'm trusting the Holy Spirit. Okay? I don't know what else to do, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit in that. So to launch us today, we're going to be in John chapter 2, just one of my favorite stories uh, from the life of Jesus. John chapter 2, you can go ahead and make your way there. Before we, before we get there, I want, to, I want to put two pictures in your mind. Okay? Pictures that may be familiar to you. Back in early 2000s, there was this company in the United States that was based in Houston, Texas, considered one of the largest companies in the world, one of the most successful companies in the world. Anybody, it was an energy company. Anybody remember the name? Enron. Did somebody say that out loud? Oh my goodness. You're right. Here's the picture just to help you remember that for those of you that did. It was Enron. Now, most of us don't know of the success of Enron. But most of us know is the infamy of Enron. We, we, we know that, you know, they, they kind of had this success story, but then things started plummeting, and they started cooking their books because their profits were being lost. Um, they were going into debt. They started hiding all of that. And to add insult to injury, just before the collapse of the company, the, the executives sold all their shares. And I read lots of reports, but one of the reports I read said that, um, you know, everybody else that was left holding the bag lost about $74 billion. 21 of those executives were eventually prosecuted and are serving time in prison. And there was just a part of me that when that happened, I just went, the tables got turned. The tables got turned. Not long ago, back in 2017, we began seeing this man's picture more frequently. Anybody know who that is? That's Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein was this, you know, Hollywood mogul, executive kind of guy. And he ended up, uh, a story broke from the New York Times, he ended up uh, having, it had been discovered that he had uh, molested, abused over, over 80 different women. 
He had harassed them in many ways. He ended up being convicted in a court in New York City um, and sentenced to 23 years and then was extradited to California and was convicted of and sentenced there for 16 years. His, his sentencing cannot run concurrently. He'll have to you know, do his time in New York and then he'll be transferred to California. So he's looking at 39 years in prison and there was something in many hearts that said, tables got turned, you know? Um, that actually launched kind of a campaign, what came to be known as the hashtag MeToo movement. And over 2.3 million people have gone on uh, onto the web and, you know, done that hashtag MeToo uh, to declare that they have been abused, that they have been uh, harassed, that they have been taken advantage of also. And hundreds who committed those actions have been held accountable. The tables got turned. Those two pictures, when I think about them, remind me of uh, what that uh, Lord Acton uh, of Parliament, the British Parliament, once said, that power corrupts, but absolute power can corrupt absolutely. And when we kind of turn through the, the pages of human history, we see that truth playing out again and again and again. And unfortunately, we have seen it played out among the people of God in both Testaments, Old and New Testaments. And, you know, when we see somebody taken advantage of like that, there's something that rises up in us that just says it ought not be. We want to see the tables get turned. We want to see that happen. And I want you to see today that Jesus agrees with that sentiment. In fact, that sentiment in you and me actually, I believe, is birthed in the very heart of God. So I want us to look at this encounter from the life of Jesus when he walked among us. We're going to be in John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. I'm only going to read down to probably about verse 16, 17, something like that. And uh, then we'll, we'll pause. But we're going to make our way all the way through the remainder uh, of the chapter. It's just one of these great stories. Starting in verse 13, just to give some context. The Passover of Jesus, excuse me, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to stop there, though. We're going to make our way through the rest of this. Now, one of the interesting things about this account is it shows up in all four Gospels. Not everything does that Jesus did, um, but it, this one is one of those that shows up in all four Gospels, which tells me this is one of those stories we need to grab hold of. We need to wrestle in and let it, let it come, kind of come over us. And one of the things that we see here that Jesus knows is that sometimes on uh, certain occasions it takes action to catalyze change. And this is the first kind of point that I want to make today is this. Jesus tosses tables because he knows it sometimes requires dynamic action to accomplish drastic change. Sometimes you've got to, you got to get engaged. You've got to move in powerful ways, especially when it involves systems of power. 
And sometimes that power starts in our own hearts. And that's what we see Jesus doing exactly in John 2. And this is one of the scenes from Jesus' life that oftentimes people say, that just seems so out of character for Jesus. And maybe you think that rightfully so. We most often see Jesus as, you know, humble Jesus, Jesus meek and mild. Dr. Mark Galley wrote a book, and much of the book was, um, he, he wrote about uh, this event from Jesus' life in John chapter 2. And the title of Dr. Galley's book was Jesus Mean and Wild. Now, so I know some of you are saying, Jesus Mean? Come on, Joe. But he was pointing out that sometimes we need to see that there was this other side of Jesus that was passionate uh, about justice coming in, into, this, into this world. And so this event is not out of character for Jesus. It, it needed to surface. And again, all four gospel writers point this out. They don't, they don't try to pretend that this didn't happen. They didn't sweep this event under the rug. This is Jesus in all of his glory. John chapter 2, verse 13, we read a moment ago, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up, which means he literally went up in elevation because the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, is up on a hill. And so he went up to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus is seen tossing tables, we need to kind of ask, what's the context? What's going on? And John gives us that context. He said the Passover was happening. Now, if you know anything about the Passover, it, it meant that the city of Jerusalem would multiply exponentially in population. There would probably be over a million more people pouring into Jerusalem, uh, coming for miles and miles to celebrate this great Passover. There would have been much excitement and religious fervor, and everybody, everybody wanted to gather to celebrate the Passover. So what, what was the Passover? Well, if, you, if you'll recall, this was the moment in uh, history of the Jewish nation when they had been uh, slaved by the Egyptians for 400 years, and God himself came down and freed them from this captivity. And so John tells us this event with Jesus happens at Passover. And I think he wants us to see two things. First, he wants us to, you know, kind of time stamp it and say, this is what was going on contextually. But there's a second thing that I think he really wants us to see. And it, it's kind of, there's a bit of biting irony in this. I think Jesus wanted us to see that they were celebrating. The celebration was about liberation while simultaneously they had moved back into participating in a sacrificial system that had started because of corruption in it had started to enslave them once again and so jesus comes on the scene and he confronts this it's kind of like this prophetic protest against a corrupt religion jesus jesus hates corrupt religion and passover freedom it was being replaced by this religious corruption and so jesus stands against it because jesus is about bringing a new freedom uh, about bringing a, a, an even better Passover. And so this is something that we see Jesus doing here. Jesus confronts religious corruption to lead people to new freedom. He does that in our day. Jesus will come against religious corruption. He will show it for what it is because Jesus wants to bring a new exodus in the hearts of humanity. Jesus wants to bring a new freedom found only in Christ. Freedom like, like the slaves who had uh, continued in slavery two years in Texas after the Emancipation Proclamation had been given. We celebrate it as Juneteenth now. They came to hear for the first time that they were, they were free under the law. 
One of the things that I think is important to grab hold of as we walk through this is that we acknowledge how the sinfulness of human hearts so easily corrupts and twists the things of God. We, we, we just twist them. We, we, we use them to hurt people that God loves. And that has gone on since the beginning of time. And it's not beyond us. This is not one of those, oh, how could they do that kind of moments in, in human history. That's not what this is about. And we need to kind of step back from the story, not ask, you know, not read about how could they do such a thing, but we need to let, we need to let this text, this, this context read our own hearts. And so that's part of my prayer. Part of my prayer this week has kind of been that we would be captured by, by something like this. Maybe the Holy Spirit would kind of clamp down on something in our heart and we'd go, that hurts, but that helps. See, conviction from the Holy Spirit always hurts, but it always eventually helps. And so today I'm praying that, that you, you may feel, that hurts, but that helps. In fact, let, let's say that together. Okay? On, on three, we're going to say that hurts, but that helps. Okay, ready? One, two, three. That hurts, but that helps. You know, you weren't as loud as the kids were. I, I'm just sorry. They, they, were, they were much more energetic than you guys were. I'm not going to make you do it again, though. That hurts, but that, that helps. And my hope is that as we move through the, this, this story that we'll see We'll see ourselves in this, and the Holy Spirit will speak to us because in our day, you know, we corrupt all kinds of things that God intended for beauty. We corrupt authority with corruption of power. We corrupt sexuality. We corrupt money. We corrupt religion. And this text begs us to ask the question, Jesus, what tables are you wanting to turn over in my heart what tables are you wanting to turn over in, in river bluff church and, and are you willing to ask that question today jesus what 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 tables do you want to turn over in me and if you are willing to let the holy spirit ask that question in your soul continue reading john chapter 2 verse 14 in the temple he being jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons we'll come back to the pigeons in a moment and the money changers were sitting there. Now, I just get this scene in your mind. They're in the temple. This temple was glorious and fabulous. It was actually kind of one of, in its day, kind of one of the modern wonders of the world. Here's an artistic depiction of it, uh, of what it looked like. It, it, was, it was glorious. It was just incredible. People, Non-Jews would come for miles just to, to, to see this thing. And the activity that we're going to read about today, all this activity took place in kind of that big court area. You'll see there, there, there's a wall around the temple, but then there's an inner temple. There's an inner court. You might be able to see like little people in there. That's the, that's the court of the Jews, okay? The outer court, this big area, and it actually rings around the, the inner workings of the temple, that was considered the court of the Gentiles. Can you bring that uh, next one up? Just, just so you kind of see, that's the court of the Gentiles. The Jews would have never allowed what they allowed into the court of the Gentiles into their court in the temple. Never would they have allowed that. 
But they said, Shh, it's just the Gentiles. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let that in. And I want you to notice what Jesus talks about specifically. Jesus names the animals. Now, it's interesting to me because the animals that were there were actually part of the Jewish sacrificial system that God himself had established. That people were to bring as, an, as a sin offering, as a, a way to engage in God's presence. So why does Jesus toss tables in an environment? Why does he kind of rage against what has become this religious machine? Now, for, just think with me for a moment. Let's say that you are, uh, you know, a, this Jewish person. And you want to make your way because God's word calls them to make their way to celebrate the Passover, to come to the temple to do that. And so you start on this journey, and let's say that you've got this really nice little lamb that you have raised. It is a perfect spotless, you know, little lamb. And so you start your 30-mile journey to Jerusalem. And, you know, it's, it's kind of uphills, and it's kind of rocky. By the time you get there, what kind of condition do you think your unblemished lamb is going to be in? He's probably pretty battered, you know, probably got, you know, bloody hooves or whatever, you know, is going on. He's probably not an unblemished lamb. And so when you bring him to the priest, the priest looks at your lamb and says, this is a lame lamb, man. What are you, what are you trying to pass this off as a good sacrifice? And out of the shadows, out of the shadows comes someone who says, you can trade up. For just $49.95, I've got this unblemished lamb, and you, you, can just, you can just trade up for a small handling fee. And they had just corrupted this place of worship. But they had a captive audience once they were in the temple. I mean, it's kind of like going to, you know, Disney World or a major sporting event or a concert, something like that, and having to pay $47 for a hamburger. You know, they, they had a captive audience. They, they kind of had to pay, you know, what was going on. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't order from Amazon, you know, and get, get a lamb shipped in overnight. They, they didn't have the capacity. There wasn't, you know, Uber sacrifices didn't exist. They couldn't just, you know, call one in or something like that. That wasn't going to happen in that day. Matthew, in his account... Of, of this in his gospel Jesus is looking at people who are buying and selling and this is what he says about them Jesus says it's written in the scriptures my temple will be called a house of prayer but you are changing it into a hideout for robbers they had distorted God's good plan of the sacrificial system and they were stealing from people and they were manipulating people people whose hearts were well-intentioned they had come to worship God they had made this pilgrimage to the temple to to celebrate freedom in, in in God and now they're being manipulated they're being taken advantage of and Jesus looks at that and he starts tossing tables not on my watch he said not not gonna happen so here's one of the things that we see Jesus will turn tables on Jesus turns tables on manipulation in order to bring freedom in worship. Friends, there's this true sense that true worship will always turn the tables on hearts prone to manipulation. True worship of God will always do that. And so Jesus was helping people get back to the very reason they had come to the temple in the first place. 
And that was to worship the one living and true God, to encounter the living God. How terrible it was for these people to now show up only to be manipulated and taken advantage of. And I think here we need to step back for a moment and just say out loud that that can be true in our day. It can be true in the church today. Unfortunately, sometimes manipulation and religion seem to go hand in hand and it grieves the heart of God. It just breaks his heart. But we've seen it happen throughout the centuries. One of the most famous that's probably easy to see historically happened in the Roman church just before the, the, the Protestant Reformation happened. There were a number of people, really savvy religious business leaders, who began making profit off of doing something called selling indulgences. One guy that profited incredibly from the sale of indulgences was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. And he had this great sales pitch. This was his sales pitch. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was his sales pitch. And basically what he was saying is if you give to me, I can make sure that your relatives, you know, that have already passed away, they'll be released and they'll go to heaven. That was kind of the, the, the manipulative way that he was making profit off of people who were desperate for God, desperate for uh, people who had gone on to, to be with God. Tetzel raised a ton of money. He profited immen immensely. And here's what he left. He left a wake of religious manipulation in, behind him. Now, before we start throwing stones and getting all you know, uppity up as, you know, evangelicals. It happens in our day. You know, we live in glass houses, so don't throw rocks because they'll, they'll, they'll shatter, you know, what we're doing. Because all you got to do in our day is turn on a TV or go to YouTube or places like that, and you will hear preachers standing up talking about, if you sow your seeds with me, seeds of faith, It'll come back a hundredfold. And people desperate for a connection with God, desperate for, you know, a, a blessing from the Lord, they, they, they give in to that. They're manipulated by that. And those people that are making that proclamation or flying around in their G6 jets, delivering that, you know, that message everywhere. And it is working. You know who it's working for? Just them. It's the only person that it's working for. And people come to try to love and worship and seek God, and they get taken advantage of in our day. In the name of Jesus, in our day. Jesus hates that. He, he absolutely hates it. Story goes on, verse 15. And making a whip of cords. Now, we're going to come back to those cords in a minute. But making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned those their tables. I, just, I hope you could just imagine, you know, what happens when Jesus begins to do this. The temple courts are packed to the gills, and Jesus has the audacity in, you know, a high season of, of Passover to do something. Friends, this is Alpha Jesus at the max. 
He's just going, going at it. Verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons. Now, he didn't talk to the people who were selling, you know, the, 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 the goats and the sheep and, and the cows and those guys. He, he didn't do that. He just points out the people raising the little birds. You know, it kind of makes you go, hey, hey Jesus, what, what you got against pigeons? You know, it goes on. He says, to, to the one selling the pigeons, you take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You know, Jesus is raging against this machinery, this commerce that has been set up in the temple of God. But now suddenly he just names the pigeon keepers. And you kind of got to go, okay, why did he get so specific there? What, what, is, what is that about? I'm so glad you asked. If you open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5, you can go there or do this later. But in Leviticus chapter 5, God is giving very specific instructions about the sacrificial system and how it should be used to bless God's people. And he gets to this one verse, verse, verse 7 of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 5, and he, he says this, but if he cannot afford a lamb, if he can't afford you know, to have raised a lamb, to buy a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So what was the only reason for the pigeons being there in the first place? It was to give the poor access to God, to give them an opportunity to worship God. And Jesus comes into this, and he sees that they've even jacked up the price of pigeons. You know, people, people would make, take their family savings in order to make one trip to Jerusalem in a lifetime to celebrate the Passover. Sometimes the poor would do that. And now they show up, and the price of pigeons has been jacked up, and they're being taken advantage of, and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus goes Indiana Jones on them. Okay? That's just what Jesus does. It's just, it's incredible. He starts tossing these tables. Friends, here's another time that Jesus turns the tables. Jesus turns the tables on exploitation to bring freedom for justice to rule. Jesus does that, friends. He overturns exploitation, and he declares that the heart of God is in a very distinct way a heart for the poor, for those who are under resource. God's word over and over again tells us that God has a tender heart for those trapped in poverty. Friends, when you, when you hear people talk about that being a political agenda, friends, that's the gospel. That's the heart of God. Listen to Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. See, Jesus is going, listen, I am being insulted in my own house. You're taking advantage of the poor in my house, and God says he hates that. My people are to be a people about justice. My people are to, to rage against uh, any machinery of injustice. And the provision of pigeons in this worship event was designated for the poor. And now it's being capitalized on. And Jesus goes, ain't happening on my watch. No, not on my watch. And one of the things that I so love 
I so love about being a part of this church personally. I so love about you and your heart has historically and consistently been to care for the poor. I mean, so many of you have given sacrificially and allowed us to to pour over a million and a half dollars into the ministry center over in Midland Park and support Low Country Cares and other ministries to, to the poor. I love that about you. I thank God to be a part of a people like that. I love that so many of you serve uh, and participate in supporting the work of Third Sunday, the work uh, of God through to, to care for the homeless in, in our city. I love that our single adults are on a mission trip right now doing construction work for those who are trapped in poverty. I love that about you. I love that that's in your heart. But I wonder if there's any place, maybe some place of pretense, somewhere down deep in in our souls where we see somebody and we think, they should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. We need to be careful and let the Holy Spirit search your hearts to see if, if, there's, if that still exists there. Because if it does, that's a table Jesus wants to turn over. That he, he wants to come and toss. He said, I don't want that in my people. My people are to do justice. My people are to love mercy. That's, that's the heartbeat of God. And so the Bible tells us, back in verse 15, we read it a moment ago, that Jesus makes a whip out of cords. Where did the cords come from? You ever wondered that? Where, where did the cords that he now makes this whip? He's in the temple. It doesn't say he brought a whip with him. It doesn't say he brought cords with him. It just, it just, they're cords. And I've read a lot of different, you know, possibilities of what it could be. You know, it could have been cords that had tied some of the animals down. It could be a lot of different things. But I read one that just really captured my heart. I'm not saying this is the gospel truth. Um, I'm just saying it's, it's an explanation of what may have happened. It was a Jewish rabbi, uh, an article that, that he, he wrote, and he was talking about, he believed that Jesus made the whip out of the cords of the tassels that were on his robe. If you go back, we're not going to turn there now, but if you go back, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 15. God gives some instructions to his people about wearing something on their outer garments that had tassels that had a blue thread that would run through that tassel. And that blue thread was to remind them, when they looked at those tassels and saw that blue thread, it was to remind them that they were the unique people of God. They were in covenant with God, and that covenant was to keep the commands of God. It was to keep them mindful of that covenant to follow the commands of God. And he goes on to write, isn't it ironic that Jesus might would use those cords, the cords of you know, covenant, basically, to run people out who were manipulating and keeping people who, were, who had developed a tradition that was undermining the worship of God. I mean, it, it makes sense to me that Jesus would do something like that. I'm not saying that's the way it happened, but, but I could see that happening. You know, Jesus was saying, folks, you got off track. Somewhere along the way, we stopped doing the commands of God and, and started, you know, bowing to the traditions of human beings. Somewhere along this way, it became more about economics than about worship. Somewhere along the way, compassion 
for the poor began to be depleted. And Jesus flips the tables over and says, no, no. It's not about preserving tradition. It's not, you know, it's not about the commerce that they had brought into this place. The heart of God was missing that Passover. And Jesus was there to bring it back. So when Jesus makes this whip, you know, possibly out of the cords of his own robe, you know, I think it was the way of saying, you know, whether you've just started selling in here or whether you are second generation tradesmen in here, you're far from the heart of God. You're missing the heart of God. You've created traditions that are creating barriers to people getting close to God. That hurts. But that can help. Because we need to ask ourselves the question, are there places in my own life, in my own pursuit of God, that I create barriers that keep other people pushed away from God? In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God speaks through the prophet Hosea. Look at what he says. He says, I want faithful love more than, more than what? More than animal sacrifice. He says, I want people to know me more than what? Than I want burnt offerings. See, those, those were the words that Jesus would later repeat to the Pharisees. You know, as people were flocking to Jesus and turning away from them. You know, they thought the religious elite, you know, that Jesus should be for them and the crowds, he shouldn't get involved in the crowds. But Jesus is saying, you've forgotten it all. You know, all you're doing is raising the prices and manipulating and exploiting people. And he says, you've lost the whole point of God's story. You've lost the plot of it all. You know, it, it's not about going through the motions, the sacrifice. It's not about that. It's it's not about capitalizing on these sacrifices. It's about steadfast love. It's about knowing God. It's, a, it's about him. Now, you know, one of the things I love when I read the scriptures is Jesus would just, he would come up against human tradition in a heartbeat. He would just come at the religious leaders of his day and say, that's not of God. Now, please hear me. Jesus never broke the law of God, but he would decimate human traditions. All these bunch of added rules and regulations that religious leaders came up to the word of God, he would just decimate those things. And you know what? It made the religious people of that day really mad. They got really ticked at Jesus. And one of the things that I did this week is I just prayed through that, and I thought about it, and I sat in it. And I'm kind of praying that you'll have to get messed with too in your own heart, and that the Holy Spirit maybe can use this. What traditions... Are you holding on to that are man-made, that are sacred? What traditions are you holding on to that may actually keep somebody else from stepping into holy space and getting to know to God? You know? What, what barriers have we created as a church that keep people from experiencing the grace of God? What, what exists here? What exists in my own heart? And those are questions that we all need to we need to give the Holy Spirit space to ask. Back to our account in John 2, verse 17. His disciples, in the middle of this commotion, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house 
will consume me. Now, we talked about this before. The disciples obviously had kind of flunked out of rabbi school when Jesus called them, but they still knew their scriptures. And they would have known that this, this verse from Psalm 69, uh, this zeal, you know, um, that they would, they would see this zeal in Jesus. Psalm 69, uh, someone who is in immense, kind of intense emotion, feeling pressure from the culture, stands and says, I will maintain zeal for your house. God, I'll maintain zeal for it. Even though the culture may, may rage against you, I'll maintain zeal. The, the word in Greek for zeal gets translated actually means to boil over. And they're, they're recognizing that Jesus is having that zeal, that kind of boil over point for the house of God. Jesus was jealous for the purity of his father's house. Jesus was passionate that people would be able to come and have access to God his father. That's what Jesus was zealous for. That's what he was zealous for. In Psalm 27, 4, Jesus would have lived this out. David wrote these words, I ask only one thing from the Lord. This is what I want. Let me live in the Lord's house all my life. Let me see the Lord's beauty and look with my own eyes at his temple. David is, is expressing what Jesus is being zealous for in that moment. He wants people to seek God, to be able to gaze upon the beauty of God's glory and and the beauty of his grace, to be able to to experience conversation with God, to know God. And in order to make that happen, Jesus comes to turn tables over. Jesus says we're getting back. We're getting away from this buying and selling. We're getting away from buy and sell so that we can have come and see Come and gaze on the beauty of God. Come and see his great grace and and worship him and pour out your heart. Let him be the king of kings and lord of lords. We got to get big business, if you would, out of this journey to meet with God. So Jesus, again, he turns the tables on commodity to bring freedom and intimacy. He destroys this commerce that had become something of, of the worship of God. He destroys this commodity to bring you know, freedom and intimacy about meeting God. It's not about turning a prophet, it's about a person. And the whole idea of commodifying God is something that all of us need to kind of pause on for a moment. I love this quote from uh, Richard Halverson. Richard Halverson served as the chaplain for the United States Senate from 1981 to 1995. So he was kind of like their, you know, their voice of of the gospel, if you would, in the United States Senate at that time. I want you to listen to something that that he said just blew my mind. He He said, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Then it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. Finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. That hurts. But that helps. See, here's the question I've been asking myself, and I invite you to on on this journey. Are there ways that I have turned church, the church of Jesus into a place of goods and services for me? Is the church about me or is it about Jesus? 
Does the church exist so that I can get all my needs met? Or does the church exist for Jesus? How do I commodify God? How do I commodify my, my relationship with you? You know, we, we could all, in our day, we could all just download our favorite songs, you know, our favorite, our, our favorite worship bands or our favorite gospel quartet, and then we could go to our, our favorite podcasting pastor and we could get the favorite messages that he's ever delivered, you know, and we could, we could just play those over and over and over and we could just, you know, just me and Jesus got a good thing going on kind of thing. We could do our own virtual worship and commodify God. And people were doing that. They're just turning inward on this journey and forgetting that there's something to do with the community of God's people gathering for the purpose of encountering the living God. So, are you here today because you wanted to meet with the resurrected Jesus? Maybe hear his voice speak to you? Or did you just kind of come to check a box? You know, it's Sunday, we got to got to do the church thing you know are are there ways that you just kind of get your religious hustle on you know and you just kind of kind of try to live it on autopilot kind of like you do with an amazon subscription where it just keeps renewing and you get your coffee delivered to your home right on time or is your heart been open you know to say god i want you one of the questions that i i sat and just kind of pondered over is, is my mind, is my mind a house of prayer? Is my heart a house of prayer? Or has my mind and my heart just become a marketplace where my affections can be bought and sold by everything in the world? Is, is my soul, is it, is it a place, you know, of communion with the Lord or has it become like an emporium, you know, an, a Middle Eastern bazaar where, you know, everything's being exchanged around? See, Jesus comes and tosses tables because Jesus is jealous for your heart. And Jesus wants to take your heart off the market. He wants your whole heart. One of the interesting things for me when I read about the life of Jesus are the ways I get new insights, not just from what Jesus does or says, but from the reactions of the crowd when he does or says. It helps me contextualize what's going on. And so I want you to look at the context of this from the crowd's perspective of what's going on. Jesus, you know, tossed the tables. He's driven everybody out. And verse 18, it says, so the Jews said to him, so this, all of this has happened, and now the Jews are questioning Jesus. What signs do you show for doing these things? And basically what they're saying, Jesus, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to come in here and put a stop to our sacrificial system the way we do it, to, 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 to interrupt our economy? And our religious services, goods and services that are built around. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And I want you to just notice that Jesus makes this statement in the shadow of this massive structure this temple you know this this building that took over four decades to build and jesus is coming saying it's not about a building it's about a body it's about 
the person. It's about me. Now, if you go back earlier, John had dropped us a few breadcrumbs back in John chapter 1 and verse 14 when he told us that, that, um, that the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That, that word dwelt can be tabernacled among us or templed among us, the dwelling, kind of the dwelling place. And now Jesus is standing in front of the temple, the kind of permanent tabernacle, if you would, and he says, I'm the tabernacle of God. I am now the tabernacle of God. And now remember, in Judaism, that temple, it was about everything. It was the place where people met. It was where community happened. It was where commerce happened. You know, it was where religion happened. It was the place where the glory of God had at one time dwelt. And Jesus is standing in front of that in the context of that and saying, it's not about this. It's about me. Here's the new place where forgiveness will take place. It won't take place in the sacrificial system any longer. See, Jesus is the Lamb of God who now will take away the sins of the world. Not through a purchase sacrifice, but a gift of God's sacrifice. His only begotten Son. It won't be accessed through tradition. You know, it'll only be accessed through the purity of heart. You know, Jesus said, the pure in heart shall see God. And we can only be made pure in heart by the holiness of the sacrifice of Jesus. Not by the blood of goats and bulls and, and pigeons but through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. See, Jesus is claiming to be doing something completely different and new. And the old temple, in the context of that, becomes pretty redundant based on who he is and what he is about to do. And in those days, that could get you killed, those kinds of words. And guess what? It did. It got Jesus killed but he made those words for your sake and for mine. He took on that establishment. Now listen to the rest of John's account. Notice what it says in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. When did they believe those words? Only after Jesus had been raised from the dead. See, it's only after Jesus conquers death that even his disciples that were with him on that day began to actually believe the things that Jesus had said when they were with him. And can you just kind of see him in the upper room? You know, they've seen the risen Jesus, and now you can kind of see him going, oh my gosh, do you remember when he was standing in front of the temple and he said, you tear this thing down, I'll build it back in three days? That, I believe they got so excited. And the ripple effects of them going back and thinking about everything Jesus did and said after the resurrection gave us the four Gospels. How much poorer would we be if they hadn't done that? If they hadn't gone back and remembered under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remembered and recalled everything that he did and said on the other side of the resurrection. Friends, you and I need to do this. We need to look at everything that Jesus does and everything that Jesus says on the other side of the resurrection. We need to see him that way. That's how the, the Spirit of God wants to move in us. And we need to be willing to let go of our traditions so that the Holy Spirit's promptings will have unhindered sway in us. That we would go back and do the things the way God wants us to. And, and so maybe we ask afresh, Jesus, what tables do you want to turn over in us? What do you want to toss up in me? 
look at this, verse 23 through 25. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But now look at, you get an insight into Jesus and his thoughts in these moments. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man here's what i take away from that this is in the context of this great corruption that had taken place in the worship of god the manipulation the exploitation the creating of traditions that destroyed compassion and i think what jesus is saying in the closing part of this chapter is it's in every human heart jesus is saying this is the condition of all of mankind throughout the ages not just those in the temple that day it's in you it's in me this capacity to manipulate to exploit to build traditions to create things that destroy compassion it's in all of us and Jesus is coming to turn those tables over in us because he wants us free from that he wants us set free Okay, I'm closing now. And I really mean it. I know some of you are saying, Baptist pastors say that and they never mean it. I mean it, okay? I'm, I'm closing now. Um, in his book, The Divine Commodity by Jathani Skye, Jathani does a comparison of two pieces of art. The first is a piece of art by Vincent van Gogh called Starry Night. Um, you can bring that up if you would. Vincent van Gogh, many of you know, um, early in his life was a devoted follower of Christ. Um, in some of his writings, he writes about uh, a, a season early in his life where he was going to commit to be a missionary. But later in his life, he grew disenfranchised with the church in, in his day, with the institutional church as, as he saw it. And one of the things he said in that season of his life, he said, the God of the clergyman, he is for me as dead as a doornail. And one of the things this tension... Uh, showed up, one of the places it showed up was in his artwork, um, in, in his paintings, and, and it shows up in this, this great work called Starry Night. If you, if it's, the, it's all about the divine light, if you would, in the night. And if you zoom down into the village and you look at the village, you look at the buildings in the village, all of the buildings in the village have light emanating even from within the inside except one. You know which one? The church. For Van Gogh, the church had become cold and, and dark and silent. That was what the church represented to Van Gogh in the latter days of his life. But now there's a more modern artist. His name is Ron English, and he did a parody of Van Gogh's Starry Night. And he called it Starry Night Urban Sprawl. Can you bring that one up? Thank you. Um, in it, it's a whole lot different than Starry Night. And the church in this one is not dark. It's bright and shiny with golden arches and King Kong climbing on the steeple. And it's a picture of entertainment and enterprise. And that's two pictures that I think those of us who live and breathe in the church of Jesus need to kind of hold intention in our minds because Jesus wants to toss the tables 
on his church existing for the purpose of enterprise or entertainment. It's not about entertaining, manipulation. It's about worship. It's not about enterprising exploitation. It's about justice for the poor in specific ways. It's not about preserving tradition, but about proclaiming the compassion that God has for every single person who walks through the doors of this building and who walk the streets of our city, the heart of God for people. And I think Jesus just wants us in our day to be haunted by both of those pieces of art and just let them kind of ask the question of our own hearts. Do I in some way help the church be silent and cold and dark? Or do I allow the power of the Holy Spirit to flow through me so that life comes to others and that light comes to others? Or do I just think the church exists for my entertainment or maybe some kind of enterprise and, you know, it it exerts as a commodity for me to just draw from? See, Jesus is saying, he's saying something here that I want you to take away, and it's this. His sacrifice... His sacrifice alone is the only thing that can become our holiness. And his presence is the only thing worth having passion for. See, Jesus Jesus wants his sacrifice to become our holiness and his presence to become our passion. And that's his invitation today. He's inviting us to, 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 to look at life in the kingdom that way. That the only way that I can live in the kingdom of God is for his holiness, his holiness alone. That that it would come from his sacrifice. Not from me, not from my pursuit, not from any works that I do, just his holiness. And that for my life to have passion and meaning and purpose, it would simply come from a growing presence of the Lord in me. Let's pray. Jesus, we we come in this moment. We come first giving thanks to you for your goodness and your grace and mercy, but also because you love us enough. You love us enough to come to us and turn over the tables in our own hearts where exploitation may exist or where tradition have somehow blocked out a deep pursuit of you and the people that you love. Where manipulation in our own hearts may happen. Where a lack of compassion for the poor specifically has gotten swallowed up in the ways that we have commodified you, O God. Jesus, we come confessing to any place in our hearts, Holy Spirit, where you will bring conviction that there are times when We think about the church as what we can get out of it instead of what we can give to it. Think about how we need someone to sacrifice for me instead of me coming to be a living sacrifice for you, oh God. So Jesus, we come. We come thankful that you love us enough to continue to work in our hearts, to draw us to that place of worship in you that place where we can find peace with God, where we can find hope for living in this day. And maybe maybe you're here, you've never trusted the Lord like 
we celebrated Nico doing earlier in our service, giving his young heart to God. Maybe, maybe today, right where you're seated, you now want to do that, that, that Jesus, the Jesus that we read about today is so attractive to you, pulls your heart so deeply in that you want him to be your Lord and your Savior and your King and the ruler of your life. You've tried it your way and you're saying, I, I'll repent of that. I'll walk away from that, Jesus, to have you lead me. The Bible says if you call anyone who calls on the name of Jesus in a heart of repentance, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to make him more of their lives, the Bible says you call on him that way and you will be saved. And he'll make your heart the dwelling place of God. Most of us here today just need to recommit to that afresh. We need to give the Holy Spirit permission, not just permission, but longing. God, come in. Turn over to the tables in our heart, my heart, that keep me from following you fully and passionately, from, from living in the hope that I can have in you, Jesus. Only you can be our living hope. And we want that. We want our hope in you. And so we come once again to worship you, to recommit our lives to you, to follow you. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray.